All right, if y'all would, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. And let me encourage you to, uh, to get a Bible either in the seat in front of you or if you're in the front row, maybe behind you. And uh, keep your Bibles open. This, this, is, this is truly just one of the most amazing sections of Scripture, I think, in, in, in all Scripture. Um, there really is nothing like it. And then again, the whole Bible is like it. But it's just another way we turn the diamond to see more particular how gracious God's grace is. Um, I really do think the Lord has done a lot in my own heart this week through this text. But then also, I really do think that when you take it to heart, he'll do a lot in you as well. Luke 18 verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. So the parable goes, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or if I can give a more accurate translation. God, be propitious towards me, the sinner. Then Jesus follows up this parable saying, verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we ask tonight that you bless the preaching of your word. Your word is the word of power and peace to convert those who do not belong to you. But it is also the peace to those who have already come to saving faith. So Holy Spirit, please use your powerful word to awaken us from our spiritual slumber And to resurrect us from our spiritual deadness. May your word pass from ear to heart, from heart to hand, and from hand to the life that you call us to live. Holy Spirit, only you can accomplish this. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Shortly after leaving his office As mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg was interviewed about some of his work that he had done. In his mind, because of all his work of fighting obesity and smoking and gun control, with a grin to the interviewer, he spoke about how he felt. This is legitimately his quote. I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. He told reporter Jeremy Peters, I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. 
What is it that makes you tempted to say that you've earned your place in heaven? What is it that you hope others might see about you so that they might think you're a good person? In the context of this parable, you actually will see before it, there's the parable of the persistent widow and she's, she's praying and, and she's yearning for an answer to her prayer. And Jesus ends that in verse 8 saying, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Surely the people who are hearing this, especially the self-righteous, they would say, oh yeah, he's going to find faith on earth. If he's going to find it, he'll find it in us. So that's what Jesus will tell the following parable. But even after this parable that we're going to look at tonight, Jesus will say in verse 15, now they were bringing even the infants to him that he might touch them. And Jesus says in verse 16, let the children come to me. Why children? Because children, like this widow, they're the opposite of the self-righteous. They're the opposite of saying, I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. But rather, it's the picture of utter dependence upon Jesus Christ. That's the point of this parable. The point of the parable is to rebuke our self-righteousness so that we would come to Jesus depending totally upon him so really, if we can twist that saying from Michael Bloomberg, we can actually say this. Christ has earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Christ has earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. I want to look at two things. First off, how not to approach God. And then secondly, how to approach God. How not to approach God. How to approach God. You see that very clearly here in this text. There's two main characters in this parable. You have the Pharisee and you have the tax collector. That's a very good way to, to locate you know, who are the characters in this section of scripture. In the Pharisee, we see how he is the example of how not to approach God. But we need to ask this, who is the parable for? Go back to verse nine. Who is this parable for? Verse 9 says he also told this parable to who? To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. They trusted in themselves. They built a foundation upon themselves that when they looked at themselves, when they had that inner conversation, which by the way, the most influential voice you will hear every single day is the inner conversation you have with yourself. And in that inner conversation, literally the way this is written in the Greek is that they were persuaded by themselves that they were righteous and other people weren't. It's very interesting that Ezekiel 33 verse 13 says, Though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if the righteous trust in his own righteousness... And does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered, but in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. In other words, when you trust in yourself, Scripture is saying you will surely die. It's interesting, this word for trusting in yourself is the Greek word patho. Patho was the goddess of persuasion. 
It's interesting that Patho, the goddess of persuasion, she used seductive or charming speech. Interestingly, she used her persuasion either for sexual purposes or political purposes. And isn't that very interesting? Because in today's world, aren't those two of the biggest areas where we try to declare ourselves as righteous? Either in sexuality or in politics. They trusted that they were righteous. What does that mean? Righteous, a righteous person was someone who would have been civilized. They would have preserved their culture, their culture's customs and legal norms. For the Jews, obviously, to be, to be righteous, to be civilized, was someone who would obey the Mosaic law to the T. And if someone did that, it was the Pharisees. <laughs> I think for us, the question we need to ask is this, is what is, or excuse me, let me put it this way. Who is known as the good citizen today? That's who we would consider the righteous person, the person who is in the right, the person who we think is properly preserving justice and cultural customs in our own eyes. You see, but, but like this person, like these people who Jesus is talking to, we reject God's law for the law of self. Here's one of the biggest things we say today. I must obey myself. I must always follow my heart. I must always follow my passions. Do you know what the biggest heresy in today's world is? Is for someone to tell me to say no to myself. How dare you? One of the ways in which you see in our world today, people will declare themselves as righteous because they will say yes to every impulse that they have. They will treat themselves as the truth and everyone else can do their own thing because truth is relative. See, interestingly, like today, just like back then, it's the self-righteous people who tend to treat others with contempt. You see that at the end of verse 9. Those who trusted in themselves, they trusted that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Well, of course, because if I think I'm righteous, and let me, let me, let me pick on the three moors here. That's just, that's kind of like, a, it's like putting the, the ball on the tee, right? You're just all three right there is perfect. If I think I'm righteous, but all three of the moors are different for me, then here's what I'll say. I'm righteous and everything about them is unrighteous. They, if they're going to be righteous, they need to be like me because I'm the standard. That's what we do. That's how we treat other people. Treating others with contempt would be the same verb used for when the soldiers would treat Jesus with contempt on his way to the cross. In other words, it's really harsh. It's used for rejecting someone or having a judgmental attitude towards someone or, or not letting someone have equal footing with you or to treat someone as inferior. And maybe you don't always show it, but you utterly disdain someone for them not being like you. We can often do that still whenever we compliment someone, which is really just flattery, but deep down we despise them because they're not like me. We actually find security and comfort in comparing ourselves to other people, as one person says. That's often why 
We're very intimidated when we see other people growing in godliness or giftedness that might rival us. When someone begins to rival us with our influence to our friend group, one of the things we do is we tend to slander and gossip about them so that we can cast them down so that we can keep our pedestal. See, when this happens, when there is a culture and community of self-righteousness, inevitably it will be a community of sin hunting. That's the only thing you want to see in the other person. That's the only thing you want to focus on. And here's what will typically happen. Especially if someone has more public gifts, you love to say, well, they might be gifted, but you don't know this about them. Because we think that it's our job to be the Holy Spirit to humble them rather than letting the Holy Spirit be a Holy Spirit. In a self-righteous community, what can happen is that it can turn into a are-you-doing-enough community. Now, all these things that I'm about to name here, uh, for the most part, some of them not, but for the most part, they're good in and of themselves. But here's what we do in an are-you-doing-enough community, and we take these things to an extreme and we make it wrong. We say, are you doing enough justice? Are you doing enough missions? Are you doing enough studying? Are you doing enough socializing? Are you a loving enough person? Are you tithing enough? Are you virtue signaling enough? Are you working enough? Are you posting on social media enough? Are you commenting on things enough? Are you reading enough? Are you dieting enough? Are you working out enough? Are you evangelizing enough? Do you have enough feelings? That's just the tip of the iceberg. In a self-righteous community, we will always look at each other and we'll say, are you doing enough? And if you're not, you're not righteous. We can often say this about if it's a self-righteous community, we can say, well, at least I'm not doing this. At least I'm not getting drunk on the strip. Or at least I'm not sleeping around. Or at least I'm not smoking weed. Or at least I'm not looking at pornography. Or at least I don't use that horrible language. We can think in a self-righteous community that Christianity is only about avoiding some stuff and doing good stuff. And you miss the whole point of it. Because Christianity is about Christ. But we very often love to take Christ out of Christianity. I love what one person says. <laughs> Pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone else in the room sick except for the person who has it. Because when I'm a prideful person, I'll look at everyone else and I'll say, well, y'all are the ones who are sick, but I'm fine. That's who Jesus is telling this parable to. What's the parable saying? Look at verse 10. Two men go up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. Going up into the temple, this language would remind us that in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem temple would be up on a hill. So literally you would ascend to the temple. And there would be certain psalms actually that you would sing called ascension psalms. That you would sing as you would go up to the temple. They would go up to the temple for feasts, but also even for daily hours of prayer. But what's interesting here is that when Jesus is telling this parable, he chooses two of the complete opposite people. He chooses arguably the most righteous person in society's eyes 
and the most unrighteous person in society's eyes, the Pharisee and the tax collector. He's going from alpha to omega, from A to Z. He's going to the polar extremes so that everyone can get the point of this message. That's what he's saying. Who is the Pharisee? You see, verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You see, the Pharisee, he is standing by himself. He is standing by himself so that he doesn't have to come in contact with those gruesome sinners because he doesn't want to become unclean. In other words, I don't hang around those people so that people don't think about me that way. Very interesting in his prayer, you see him using God's name. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that remind us that just because we use theology and just because we use God's name, that does not mean you're by default a Christian. He stands by himself. He's using God's name. But you also see that he uses I five times there. That's a big emphasis also in the original languages. I, in other words, who is his prayer all about? Who is he really worshiping himself? I am this. I am this. I am this. You see, he's, he's building his own Tower of Babel. What's interesting is that we can call ourselves Christians, but in reality, we make life all about us. Because really, God is just a genie and a resume booster for me rather than God. That's what this guy's like. He's naming more of himself. He cares more about himself. And then he begins to contrast himself with the tax collector. He loves saying, look, I'm not like these other guys. I'm not like extortioners or unjust or adulterers or even this tax collector. Lord, thank you that you've made me different and not like those idiots. He declares his own excellencies to God. He gives God his own resume as if his resume can match the one who is holding every atom and molecule up in his divine sovereignty. Here's what's really interesting about this guy. He feels righteous. Let that be a reminder to us that our feelings do not always tell us the true story. You might feel righteous, but that does not always determine your reality. The question is, are you righteous? And the word is how, how you know whether you're righteous or not. It's interesting in this literature... You see that five words are used here to describe the Pharisee's posture, his standing. But 29 words in the Greek are used to narrate his prayer, a very self-centered prayer. Contrary, uh, contrary to this, 19 words are used to describe the tax collector's posture. And only six words, his prayer, a very God-centered prayer. We'll get to that in a second. But let us be reminded here of 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
Guys, you can fool a lot of people by what you post, by what you say, by how you dress, and by what you avoid. But God sees the heart. See, at the time when they would go up to the temple, there was a, a time period within that what seems like where people could pray out loud. And what seems to be happening here in this parable is that this Pharisee is praying out loud. It's like he's giving an unwanted lesson in morals and ethics to everyone around. He's standing by himself so that he can be seen. And really what he's doing here is he's just virtue signaling. Literally, here's the definition of virtue signaling because I just Google, you know. So let's, here's what it says. Virtue signaling is the action or practice of publicly expressing opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's own good character or moral correctness of one's position on a particular issue. This prayer is this guy. It's really not a prayer. It's just him preaching a sermon about himself saying, hear ye, hear ye, look at me. And everyone else needs to get on my level because I'm righteous and you suckers aren't. That's what he's saying. How do we pray, thank you that I'm not like this? <laughs> you know, sometimes Jesus gives drive-by statements and uh, he'll say something and you're like, whoa, that is really offensive. And you're like, can you rewind that back? Sometimes we need that. Sometimes we say this. Thank you that you made me rich and not poor like those other people. Thank you that you made me poor and not like those self-righteous rich people. Thank you that you made me pretty and sexy rather than unassuming. Thank you that you didn't make me stuck up like those other people. Thank you that you made me be in Greek life or that you made me not in Greek life and not like those others. Thank you that you made me to align with this political party and not the other. Thank you that you made me not care about politics and not get caught up in such worldly things. Thank you that you made me sexually pure and not like those adulterers. Thank you that you made me reformed and not Arminian or vice versa. Thank you that you made me have this skin color and not that despicable other one. Thank you that you gave me these gifts and not those boring other ones. Thank you for giving me these standards so that I don't live a loose life like others. Thank you that I didn't go to public school or private school or homeschool or whatever it is and not like those other people. Thank you for making me feel this conviction rather than others. My friends, what are you telling God thank you for? That is your functional righteousness. See, here's actually one of the ways we can do. We can also say this, Lord, thank you for making me not like that Pharisee, but you're doing what the Pharisee's doing. That's tough. <laughs> you read this and you're like, whew, Lord, this is a bad picture. Thank you for not, oh, that's exactly what I'm doing. Yes, we all do it. David Zoll says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but that hasn't stopped us from comparing the distances. It's as if this Pharisee is saying to God this, considering his past and all that he's done to other people, how unjust he's been, how he's betrayed others, how he has stolen from others. I hope he has to live in a mental prison of debilitating guilt that is always going to be plaguing his conscience for the rest of his life. I hope 
that this guy never finds rest in anything, but rather constantly lives with regret and shame. I hope nobody helps him out with anything. I hope that even when he says, I'm sorry, that no one lets him embrace forgiveness or move on in peace. I hope that he has to live an entire lifetime saying, I'm sorry to, to everyone, and yet he still goes to hell. That's what he's hoping for. When he says, I fast twice a week, look at verse 12. You see, interestingly, fasting in the Old Testament was only required one day a year on the Day of Atonement. The Pharisees chose to fast two days before and two days after each of the three major Jewish festivals. That'd be 12 days a year. But this guy's saying, I don't just do that. I fast twice a week. How do we do this? We say, well, I'm really the one who reads their Bible, who prays and goes to church. I'm really the one who obeys the Ten Commandments. I'm really the one who knows theology. I'm really the one who cares for the poor and oppressed. I'm really the one who is trying to fix society. I'm really the one who loves others. I'm really the one who lives on mission. But oftentimes, isn't the reason why we're doing those things is to find some sort of a way to turn off the conscience telling us that we're guilty? One person says the motive of this Pharisee may have been to atone for his own sins and the sins of others, to prevent further catastrophe befalling Israel or further God's deliverance of Israel. Don't miss this in the things you see on social media. All this virtue signaling, all these different things, whether you think about it from the quote unquote right or the left, whatever it is, don't miss the fact that these are atonement narratives. People are trying to do something to cover up for their sin. Here's the thing about you and me. We know there is a God, Paul tells us in Romans 1, and we know we're guilty. You might try to say that you believe one thing and not another, but we all know there is a God and we will have to answer to him. But nothing can provide that atonement except for Jesus Christ. This is a classic, what we call a law gospel sermon. You hammer people home with the law until they are just crushed into smithereens, hopefully Lord willing, and then you resurrect them with the gospel as it were. This is the dynamic of the Christian life. We need this. And we need to see that if we are someone in this parable, we are the Pharisee. The tax collector is better than us. We're often like Michael Bloomberg and we say, I have earned my place in heaven and it's not even close. But my friends, unless you can say that Christ has earned your place in heaven, it's not even close, then you're not approaching God rightly and you're not even saved unless you run to Jesus for your salvation. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. It is none of your efforts, none of your works. Don't approach God that way. But how do you approach him? Let's have some good news, right? Look at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off. Isn't that interesting? Look how much he's contrasted with the Pharisee. 
The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be propitious to me, the sinner. When Jesus is using the Pharisee and the tax collector, it would be known that the most pious person in that day would be the Pharisee and the most unpious or unrighteous or biggest sinner in that society would be the tax collector. Tax collectors were men who were contracted by Rome from the local population. They would tax people beyond what Rome asked for. They would tax people beyond that for their own selfish income. Rome would say, you do whatever you want, just give us our share. They could become however rich they wanted to be. They would often take bribes and they would grant special favors. They would be men who would be equated with robbers, Roman sympathizers, and despisers of Israel. It would have been a social death sentence to take this, and that would have meant that typically the guys who knew they were the worst of the worst would take this. One person says this, that taxes from these tax collectors could be up to 50 to 80% of your personal income. This tax collector really is despicable. You see, the Pharisee, in all honesty, it would be the person we would say, we really want you to be a part of RUF because you'll make us great. The tax collector is the person when we say, please never come again. It's the worst of the worst. Today it would be like this. The racist or the rapist. The pimp or the prostitute. The drug lords, the Jeffrey Dahmers, the Fidel Castros, the KKK members, the self-traffickers, or insert the most despicable person you know. The people that as soon as you think about them, you boil with anger inside. That's who the tax collector is. It is an interesting question you have to ask. What must have happened in this guy's conscience to make him want to come to the temple? Because those guys didn't go to the temple. What must have, what despicable thing must this despicable person have done to make him say, I think I need to go pray? Maybe you're like this guy. Maybe you don't show it publicly. But inwardly, you really are. And you're struggling with addictions, you're sleeping around, you have a criminal record, you have a haunting past, and you have a despised reputation. What brings each and every one of you here tonight? How does this guy approach God? Standing far off. It's as if as soon as he walks into the temple, he can just barely go forward anymore. He's just... He can't believe he's even there. Maybe he was thinking that as he went up to the temple, maybe Psalm 24, 3 through 6 came to his mind where it says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Describing this guy. He will receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Surely he might be thinking about and thinking about that and thinking, there's no way that can be me. Guys, if that's you, you're in a good position. He can't even lift his eyes up. Normally the posture 
of prayer back then would have been standing and looking up to heaven. That's what have been the normal posture. This was not, you know, heads bowed, eyes closed, hands folded. That was not the normal posture back then. It probably would have been seen as like, what are you doing? The posture of prayer was standing up. It was the exact opposite of what this guy's doing. Rather, he can't lift his eyes. He's beating his breast. He's literally torturing himself. This, this phrase for beating one's breast is what King David did, what did when his son Absalom died. It's also used when women would be at really, really sad funerals. This guy literally feels it in his bones and he wants like he knows he's a sinner. The law has done its work on this guy. He knows he's fallen short of the glory of God. He's not looking at anyone else. He's the guilty person. His conscience surely is screaming at him. You are guilty. And some of you know that feeling. And it is literally a hell on earth when that happens. This guy is not like this one story that's been passed down from preacher to preacher. Story goes of a young preacher who went to preach before a group of older ministers. I did, don't worry, this is not me. Um, it very well could have been. <laughs> he went to go preach in front of older ministers and he was ready to prove to these outdated and irrelevant preachers that he was really the great preacher and someone who God would mightily use. But as he preached his sermon, he felt it getting harder and harder to be clear and engaging. Finally, he concluded his poor sermon and he walked down from the pulpit humbled. That has happened to me. Afterwards, an elderly minister came up to him to give him some wisdom. And he said this, son, if you had walked up to the pulpit the way you did when you walked down, then you would have walked down from the pulpit the way you walked up. That's what Jesus is saying at the very end when he says everyone who humbles himself will be exalted, but everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. You're seeing that play out in this parable. This tax collector is humbled. And my friends, one of the best things that can happen to you is that God just hits you with a two by four of his law over your head and you drop down and you say, I can't do it. That's good. Welcome to the club, by the way. That's when the gospel becomes sweet. Christ, this is what the Christian learns how to say in this position. Christ has earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. What does this guy say to God? Notice how short his prayer is. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. More accurately in the Greek, it is literally saying, God, be propitious towards me, the sinner. What does propitious mean? Maybe you've seen that word in uh, maybe 1 John 2, 2 or Romans 3. We're talking about how Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. It actually has an Old Testament context. So let me give you some facts and then I'll show you how it's relevant. In the temple, in the most holy place, there would be the Ark of the Covenant. On the Ark of the Covenant, they would have the mercy seat. That's what this word, talking about the mercy seat, that's what it is. It would have the mercy seat, and that's where the blood of the sacrificed animal was shed for sin. 
These sacrifices in the Old Testament, they're always pointing forward to Jesus, who would be the true and ultimate Passover lamb. You see, within the Ark of the Covenant would be the two uh, uh, rock tablets of the Ten Commandments, showing you how you've broken God's law. And so because of God's law, because of who God is, sin needs atonement because the wages of sin is death. So they would kill the animal, take the blood, and they would put it on the mercy seat, and it would turn God's wrath away because the wrath went on to the sacrifice. What is this guy saying? This guy is saying, God, I deserve death. I deserve my blood to be shed. I deserve hell. I'm asking that you would be merciful to me, gracious to me, and that something else would die so that I can live. He's asking and he's trusting that there's hope that God has provided a way for sinners. That God has provided a sacrifice. Now, my friends, what do you think is coming to Jesus's mind as he's telling this parable? Because Jesus knows that his blood must be shed to save people like this. Jesus is consciously saying, I am willing to pay the penalty that this guy deserves because I am the true Passover lamb. I love what Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Hear that temple language. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer, if that could sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Amen? Hebrews 2.17 says this. <clears throat> Excuse me, voice going out. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. What is this saying, my friends? It is saying that Jesus Christ is the only person who can take away your sins. Only Jesus can turn away the wrath of God because on the cross, Jesus became the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for all the sinners that he would save. Amen? My friends, there is more mercy in Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. There is more mercy and righteousness in Jesus Christ than even the potential in you to sin. Amen? You need to believe that. Notice that this guy does not say this. He doesn't say, well, Lord, the reason why I am the way I am is because others have done this to me. He does not say that. Certainly, that would be an influence in his life. We've all been sinned against. But we don't come to the Lord and say, well, Lord, the only reason why I did this is because of this. No, we come to the Lord and we call sin for what it is. Because sinners, as Austin Royal at, at Arkansas RUF, he tells me this all the time. Sinners have an amazing ability to respond to being sinned against by sinning. 
We're all victims of sin, but we are also those who victimize others with our sins. And we bring those to Jesus. And we say, Lord, I've sinned against you, as David says, after he sinned with Bathsheba. Don't you see here that Jesus doesn't give details about what particularly he asked mercy for? Do you want to know why? So that anyone can ask mercy from Jesus. Name your sins. Name them to Jesus right now. Do you think that there's anything that you have that he cannot forgive? Do you think there is any uncleanness in you that he cannot wipe clean? Do you think there's anything in you that he cannot conquer? It might take your whole life, but he is the Lord of glory. It's so interesting that this guy, his conscience is so weighed down. So weighed down by sin and guilt that he can hardly speak the words. But even though his prayer is so short, the Spirit takes his prayer and makes it perfect before the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is heard. My friends, you might barely be able to say a one word prayer. You might only be able to say, help the Lord Jesus Christ hears you. Amen. He says that he is not just a sinner. He is the sinner. It's actually a more accurate translation. Notice how he's not like the Pharisee. He doesn't compare himself positively towards anyone. He knows how messed up he is. He's putting himself in the worst category of sinners. He's even thinking of himself as the worst possible sinner of all. But yet he looks to the atoning sacrifice what is Jesus' conclusion to this? I love verse 14 where Jesus says, I tell you, not this, not thus says the Lord. He says, I tell you. Why does he say that? Because he is the Lord. He has all authority in heaven and on earth to say this. Jesus is right about what he's about to say. And this is amazing for you and me. I tell you, this man, talking about the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified. This man was declared righteous. This man was declared in the right with God, not because he had anything to offer God, but just because he believed that the atoning sacrifice was enough. My friends, how are you justified by believing in Christ that he is enough and nothing else? As we sang earlier, we are saved by grace and grace alone. Does he offer anything to God? Nope. Are there any prerequisites that God gives him? No. Are there any stipulations? No. He just comes to Jesus and he confesses his sins and he calls out to him saying, I believe you are the Lord of life and in you all my sins can be washed away. And there is full, free and final forgiveness in him. Amen. Some of you need to, if I can kind of press a little bit, some of you need to stop self-righteously denying God's grace for you. You need to take God at his word and live with joy. He is enough for you, my friends. One of the ways in which we show our pride is not just when we boast about what we've done, but we stay downcast and we say, I can't believe I am this way. But my friends, Jesus Christ is enough for you. Satan loves to say, well, can you really rest in this? The gospel says, yes, and you must rest in this. Don't add anything to it. My friends, what is eating up your conscience at this moment? 
What is that haunting memory from the past that you feel like you can't shake? What is it that you think that maybe Jesus is not enough for you? It's at that particular point where Jesus is saying, I am infinite in worth and everything about you and your sin is finite. (laughs) Some of us just need to tell Satan when he comes to accuse you, you just need to tell him to shut up and say, look, I belong to Christ in body and in soul. You need to take it up with him. I'm not my own. You need to be like Paul in Philippians 3.13 where he says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. You need to be like Paul again in 1 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 when he says, I don't even judge myself. It is the Lord who judges me. My friends, God's judgment matters more than your judgment. And when God says that his son is enough for you, then Jesus Christ is enough for you. Amen? Believe that. There is so much mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. It will take an eternity for you to realize how amazingly gracious he is. No matter how unclean you might feel, no matter how condemned you might feel, you don't need more self-esteem. You need more Christ-esteem. I love what one person said. What kind of dude you got to be to get into this place talking about heaven? What kind of dude you got to be to get into this place? A bad dude. But a bad dude who's run to a good dude. Christ has earned my place in heaven. And it's not even close. Just before his 1971 fight with Joe Frazier, Muhammad Ali said, there seems to be some confusion. We're going to clear the confusion up on March 8th. We're going to decide once and for all who is king. There's not a man alive who can whoop me. I'm too smart. I'm too pretty. I'm the greatest. I'm the king. I should be a postage stamp. That's the only way you could lick me. Interestingly, he would go on to lose to Frazier in that fight. My friends, some of you are saying, I tithe everything I have. I fast twice a week. If someone is righteous, it is me. But my friends, the pride always comes before the fall. But those who are humbled and who run to Jesus for mercy... Every single person who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Why would you not call on him right now? Honestly, I don't even care that I preach for 46 minutes because this is the most important message you could ever hear for 46 years. Believe this and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, in Christ we know we have received your covenant presence. In Christ, we have also received your abundant forgiveness for our many sins. And we thank you for this undeserved grace. And we ask you to keep us in faith until we inherit that eternal salvation. Grant, O Lord, that we may so hear your word and and store it in our hearts. And we may walk accordingly to your ways. So that we might walk knowing where we stand with Christ. And we pray all this in his great and glorious name. Amen.